Hello and a warm welcome to a brand new podcast series called Climate Crisis Conversations, Catastrophe or Transformation, a podcast hosted by the Climate Psychology Alliance. And this is the place where, as we live through this momentous age, increasingly defined by the effects of global warming and climate chaos, we're going to be talking about how we're feeling. My name's Verity Sharp. I'm a radio broadcaster, and I believe there's a great price being paid on our mental health as the enormity of this crisis gradually dawns on us. We're having to deal with huge emotions like guilt and worry, grief, even panic. And there's something about the very nature of climate change in that it isn't immediately visible. It's not one thing that we can point to. It is incredibly complicated. And because of this, we have nowhere concrete to put our feelings, no one place for them. So talking about all this, I believe, will not only be healing, it'll also give us the strength and the resolve to move on and get involved in potential solutions. So in this, the first of our climate crisis conversations, I'm joined by Caroline Hickman, who's a climate psychologist and teaching fellow at the University of Bath. And we're going to address the question of why it's so hard for us to engage with the enormity of climate breakdown. I have to say, sometimes I feel overwhelmed by it. So what do you think, Caroline? Hello. We, we like the Small questions, don't we? Yes. we, we <laughs> at, at some point, it would be really nice to talk about, you know, what type of milk do you buy or something like that. <laughs> we'll be, do that one yeah, day. We do some easier do ones. So, our, our, but, our summer break episode. Yes, let's, let's tackle the, <laughs> the small ones as well. But I think you made a couple of really good points there. One is the visibility. Um, now, it is relatively invisible to us living in the West, and in northern industrialised sure. society. Yeah. But if you're living uh, elsewhere in the world, Absolutely. it can be highly visible. Yeah. So we've got huge numbers of communities already displaced because of the climate change and rising sea levels, haven't we? Mm. Um, so I think there's a struggle there for us to see the impact on others and to recognise that that in turn will impact on us in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a kind of political, global sensibility that we desperately need to change in order to start to come to terms with that. So that's one thing that I think it's hard. I think it's very easy for us to turn these people into the other. So because it's not happening to me, it's happening to them, I other them. Uh, that means that I don't have to engage with it emotionally. And if we turn people into the other, and we see that happen with language around uh, asylum seekers and refugees, for example, that allows me to treat them as less human, less to be cared about. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So we distance ourselves from a kind of global concern there. Mm. And it allows us to have arguments, for example, about whether we should continue flying or not, as opposed to thinking about, well, joining up. If I keep flying, more children will drown. You know, right. that's yeah. just the... Or, uh, and and I, I know people won't like me joining those two things up, but that's the awful reality. Absolutely. For a lot mm. of 
children and communities already um, and other species, other, other animals that we share the planet with. So I think that's one reason. It's just so flipping difficult. Uh, so that stuff is unthinkable. We like to think that we're nice human beings. Yeah. So to think that we are somehow contributing to the demise and the suffering of others in that way would be unbearable. So let's not think about it. But there is that that, that, that geographical difference. Yeah. The Western world, the developed world, so called, is, is, is causing it. But the, the, but the impacts are being felt you know, so far away that when we see... Harrowing images. I mean, what was it recently? You know, hurricanes hitting yeah. India and the fires uh, and the fires and and Bangladesh and, yeah. and and all of this. But we don't. It's well, it's on a television screen, I suppose. It's like a physically different medium, and we don't mm-hmm. engage. I mean, is it the same thing that we walk past homeless people on the streets? We just seem to be able to walk past. You know, it's yeah. I think I think it's hard to relate to. Yeah. So I think that again, you're pointing to the fact that it's hard for us to engage with it personally when it's not actually impacting on us. It's hard to relate to. But there are other things, as you said originally, it's so big, it's so vast, it's enormous. Um, and there's no blueprint for how to deal with this. So uh, humans, humans collectively know how to deal with war. We know how to deal with a tsunami. We know how to deal with other disasters and other crises, famine. We know how to re- react and respond. But we've never had to deal with this before. So th- it, we've got nothing showing us the way to deal with this, nothing to call back on and think back, OK, that was how our ancestors dealt with this. So we haven't got that pathway mm-hmm. forwards mm-hmm. being shown to us by other people. Um, And to be fair, I think there's been very poor leadership here politically um, about showing us the way forwards. And so the public are probably quite right in being very anxious about the lack of leadership, about how to deal with this. If our leaders can't deal with Brexit, how are they going to deal with climate change? Right. Right? People talk about Brexit anxiety and I just sort of think that's nothing Mm. compared to what you're Mm. going to be facing with climate change. And then when people do speak out, they can be attacked, annihilated. Um, We were talking earlier about the Ed Miliband interview with John Humphreys Mm. um, on the radio this week and the way John Humphreys attacked Ed Miliband and just attacked and attacked over and over again saying things like, oh, so are you saying that we can't fly anymore and that we can't eat meat anymore? And, you know, Ed Miliband, you know, couldn't deal with it because he kept trying to answer it as though it were a sensible argument. And it wasn't a sensible argument. What it was from John Humphreys was fear and anger. Mm. And all he was doing was expressing his feelings of anger and fear about this. So what would Ed Miliband could have come back with... Ideally, he'd have said, you're incredibly angry about this. You're really scared about this, aren't you? Yeah, Mm -hmm. me too. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do about this? Mm -hmm. You know, we're in this together, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Let's get John Humphreys on the podcast. I think that would be a great idea. I really do. I'd like to talk to him about that. Mm -hmm. Because I was listening on the radio and all I could hear was his fear and anger. Yeah. And I do get that. I've been doing a lot of public talks and I do get that. I was at a talk recently in Lewis and we were, you know, opening up for questions and somebody at the back stood up and just started yelling at me. And he was very, very angry with me. He was very, very angry about something I'd said. He was very afraid. And 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 I 
I'm used to this in a way because actually what I'm hearing from him, I know he's not, well, he may be angry with me. I may have said something stupid. But what he's really saying is save us. Tell us what to do. And in fact, he then started saying, tell us what to do. And because I don't have the power to mm. change these things, I have the power to take the message out there. Um, but I don't really have the power to tell everybody what to do, although I'll give it a go if someone wants to put me in that position. So he was angry, he was scared, and those feelings are starting to develop in a lot of people as they get more and more exposed to these messages. So leadership is absolutely essential here. And leaders need to show us how to think about these things and not just give practical solutions. They need to show wisdom and they need to show thoughtfulness and they need to show emotional intelligence around this. And they need to hold together these warring opposites of groups like Extinction Rebellion and people who are fracking. You know, because we're, you know, we may be on opposing sides, but we are all people. And they need to find a way to navigate through the middle of some of these things. I know I'm talking about putting two extremely opposing forces in the same room, but those are the people that really need to start talking to each other. Mm. Don't you think? Mm. I mean, I know, I know that sounds a bit wacky, but what do you think? Mm. What no, do you de- think? Definitely, definitely. Well, I mean, I also do, you know, party politics isn't helping anything, is it, really? I mean, it's got to be a coming together of everybody. Absolutely. And a bit like Brexit, you know, it would be much better if we just dissolved Parliament at the point that referendum yep. result came out and we got the parties and just had a coalition and tried to work all this together and yeah. got, you know, the thing that uh, Extinction Rebellion is saying with the... With the um, People's Assembly. People's Assembly, mm. exactly. So it is, it's yep. a coming together and a, and a kind of democratising, a proper democratising <laughs> of that- ideas and creative, you know, creative solutions, but... Oh, God, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it it be fantastic? Mm. And, yeah, because in that splitting and those arguments where we fight each other, uh, we all get nowhere. And there's different forms of denial emerging. So you you get people kind of producing a political denial. And you know that they're not actually talking about climate change or the climate emergency or the eco-crisis. You know that the subtext is, I just want to keep my job and stay elected. You know that's all they're talking about. So they're not even engaging with the reality of the the argument. And then you've got an economic denial going on, which is, you know, people thinking, well, yeah, this may all be terrible, but I just need to um, keep food on the table and pay my shareholders. Otherwise, I'll lose my job, you know. Mm. Um, So you've got an economic denial. Then you have got a small group where there is absolute total denial. But I'm not really sure what to say about them um, <laughs> <laughs> and be polite. Um, you know, they, they, they could be so terrified yeah. that they can't even begin to think about it. That's always a possibility. They could just be people who are kind of perverse and always will argue with you. So if you say, isn't it a nice day? They'll say, no, it's not. You know, so you could get that kind of kind of just argumentative character. I think the majority are people who kind of have that experience of it can't be real. It can't be that bad. It can't be real. Um, so you get that kind of level of denial, which the brain kind of then moves between half your brain going, it's real. The house is on fire. Panic. Wake up. Do something. And the other half going, no, because actually, if I look out of my window, nothing's changed. Yeah. Everything's the same. And actually, I'm too busy with the school run. And I'm too busy thinking about what to cook for dinner tonight. 
and I'm feeling less inadequate about the fact that, you know, I need to wash my hair and I need to do X, Y, Z. So don't give me something as big yeah. as climate change yeah. to deal with. Yeah. Can yeah. I can barely think about what to cook for tea tonight. So I had an experience um, recently where I made a programme for Radio 4 about eco-anxiety. And as part sure. of that, I had to read some... Pr- pretty harrowing documents that I probably wouldn't have chosen to read. Uh, One key interview that we did was with Jem Bendel, who has written this um, deep adaptation um, paper, which, so he's an academic, he's a a social scientist, um, and he wrote a paper, and apparently academic papers normally get downloaded three times. His has been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times. But interestingly, it's the absolutely worst scenario that he believes we are facing in a very short amount of time. He thinks this is all going to happen to us within about 10 years. And and I, having read that, having turned that stone over, was finding, like you say, mm. how on earth now do I mm. restabilise? How do I get myself back to my what I perceive to be my normality? And, and I mean, I... I've been engaging with all these things and reading lots of yeah. things around climate change, but I hadn't read anything that ferocious. Um, yeah, so, what, I mean, what do you what do you think? We, we need to... I wouldn't call myself a denialist, but on that level, I don't really actually want to go that far with it. So maybe I am, in a way, denying it. Well, maybe some of that denial is actually um, self-protection because otherwise you fear going crazy. Because yeah. it's terrifying. What he's talking about is is almost impossible for you to imagine. So maybe a little bit of denial when you first start to engage with those ideas is quite useful. I know when I first read his paper, it took me about <clears throat> two to three weeks to... You, I like the word you used, to restabilise. It took me two to three weeks to find my feet again, emotionally. Mm. And I remember walking in the woods every morning with the dogs after I was read, read that paper crying, mm. just crying mm. every single day um, and then having to sort of, and I let myself cry on the dog walk and then pull, pull it together and just go and teach and go th- about my day, but I gave myself time every day to grieve okay. and to let the those deeper more painful feelings t- get in touch with them for a space every day but not all the time every day I was very clear with those feelings okay you've got this space you're here you're welcome now I know you're real but you cannot take over my life I cannot have you at the front of my life for the whole day because I would struggle to function Mm. you Mm. you know Mm. um so I, I managed to destabilize and restabilize every day. And I think that is the trick, if you can manage it, is to allow both. Because you kind of don't want to fall apart and then uh, the ideal, let me, let's, because I don't want to be unfair. Um, you don't want to fall apart um, and then take six months to recover. And I think that probably gets in the way of you listening to the lessons of the paper. Right. Right? Yeah. You you fear too much destabilization. You fear being taken too far into all of that stuff. Now, for some people, that is what will happen. But I think for the majority, if you can actually learn to fall apart and get it together within the same day, mm. it, 
then mm. you'll gradually be able to absorb the lessons of that paper. Does that make sense? Mm. It's about allowing that movement um, that both are true. And this is about allowing the message from the unconscious brain that we're not completely rational creatures. This is the ego having to learn that it's not completely in control of right. our world. Yeah. That we are 5% conscious, rational beings. and 5%? Five, roughly, okay. roughly 5%. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what, roughly what Freud would, would have given us to believe. And so that's the model I'm kind of working with. So we've got 5% roughly rational. Yeah. And then we've got 95% not so rational um, doesn't mean it's irrational but speaks through metaphor speaks through different ways of engaging with these things so speaks through art yeah. speaks through stories speaks through relationship speaks through dreams speaks through music and so we get those messages through the unconscious in completely different ways yeah yeah. Yeah. So I think it's about having both a conscious and an unconscious. That's engagement. really interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, this whole question of you know, you know, um, why do we find it so hard yeah. to get our heads around it? It's because probably, and I'm totally including myself in this. I'm, I'm mm. relying on my rational brain, that five yeah. percent, most of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not. It's not gonna. It's not going to happen. Well, my my <laughs> my rational brain was sobbing in a corner mm. after it first read that paper. Because it was like, you, are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Mm. No. I mean, don't mm. give me this. Mm. You know, it'd be like giving a five-year-old, you know, the the wheel of a articulated lorry, you know, and saying, "Off you go, mm. sweetie." You know, try not to do too much damage. It was just overwhelming and too much. So I think it's about sort of again making it tolerable. But but I I want to just reiterate that the falling apart is really important part of that process. And then they're coming back together again. And because obviously people think about falling apart as a bad thing. Uh, you know, we, we have the kind of language of falling apart, going mad, losing control, you know, I mean, disintegration. especially in Britain, you know, stiff up a lip. Oh, and it's yeah. ingrained, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You just yeah. don't. You just yeah, don't. we're going to keep calm and carry yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, as opposed to, you know, fall apart and carry on. So we, there's, do you know the metaphor of the butterfly? Do you know how, and this is not a test, as in, if you don't know, it's okay. Uh, and it doesn't make you a terrible human being. Um, do you know how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly? Do well, you know what I know, actually happens? No, so obviously the metamorphosis and the, the uh, yeah. different stages that it goes through, but yeah. I don't actually know. I it's, kind of like to think it's magic. This, it's what? I'd kind of like to think it's magic. Well, it's funny you should say that. It is. It is okay. totally magic. So, and this is this is the helpful metaphor. So, I used to think that the caterpillar would get into its little cocoon and grow legs and grow wings, and turn into this other creature, but the basic creature remains the same. So it was like a caterpillar but with wings, and it blew my mind when I discovered that's not the case. What actually happens is the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and then it dissolves into a liquid. So if you break open a cocoon, I'm not encouraging people to do that, but if you break one open, it's full of liquid. So the creature breaks down into mm. nothing. Right. But it, nothing gets lost because you've got all the cells in there. But it's an absolute breakdown of the old. 
in, um, I, I'm, I'm writing something at the moment called Caterpillar Soup is the way forwards because you let yourself disintegrate and the caterpillar, you know, disintegrates. Yeah. And then all of those cells reform themselves into a whole new creature. So they fall apart and then they come back together and create this whole new creature. Wow. It's adorable, I'm isn't it? I'm loving this metaphor. It's fantastic. It's that's great. That, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. I got so overexcited when I first learnt this. And it's that's the difference between change yeah. and transformation. Right. That yes. is transformation. So you become a new creature, mm. but the cells are the same. And there's another really cute thing about the caterpillar um, butterfly, which is you mustn't help it get out of its chrysalis. So once the caterpillar has turned into the butterfly, the butterfly then has to fight to get out of its chrysalis cocoon thing. I'll be getting that completely wrong. Apologies to all the natural scientists out there. Um, it's in a thing, anyway. Um, it has, there's this really, really important process it has to go through where it has to fight. And it has to eat its way out because it's a butterfly and it has to start to chew its way out and then fight. And it has to fight and fight and fight. And it's really tough for it to fight its way out. That process of fighting pushes blood or pushes whatever it has in its wings. I'm just proving myself to be the worst naturalist in the world. I am so sorry. <laughs> I know nothing. I'm following it. I know the story. Right. I know the story. I just don't know what butterflies have got in their wings. Yeah. So apologies. Um, that pumps whatever it is into their wings and allows them to fly. Okay. If you break it for them and they crawl out, their wings don't ex open and yeah. they can't fly. Okay. So, so we need got to the go fight. That struggle. We, we've yeah. got to go through the struggle, and it is a life-death struggle. Right. Because if the butterfly doesn't get out, it will die. Yeah. And in order to fly, it's got to be out. Yeah. It just gets better and better. It does, better isn't, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And it's so helpful. Well, I think, and, and that's what we go to to find the help. Mm. Why? In what way does that help you? Why is that helpful? Well, I suppose it is the idea of everything melting down being OK. I mean, that is the thing that that is what I have not. I mean, I, I'm still quite sort of raw from this old experience of, yeah. of, of reading these sorts of papers. And like, yeah, I haven't gone through the, yeah. the, the sort of, you know, the three weeks of um, but falling uh, apart. No, yes. But it, it but it is that that you don't want to fall apart, yeah. that fear of falling apart, especially having, mm. you know, being a parent and, and all those kinds of things. And, and actually being a child, you know, my parents aren't getting their heads around this at all so I don't yeah. want to fall apart and have my parents worrying that I'm falling falling apart yeah but to have something as powerful as that 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 it's only by falling apart mm -hmm. yeah that you really can um yes re-emerge is the word isn't it um and and also that that it kind of brings an excitement in there as to what you might re-emerge as Absolutely. you might be somebody you know better or better is a very a subjective word but you know what I mean different well you'll have evolved right um you know it this is it's, it's a first a soulful emotional psychological intellectual evolution which maybe is the next stage for you in this world so maybe if we can take you through this process of disintegration mm. of making the program reading the paper feeling terrible struggling with that but then show you that there is a way to reshape yourself with these new ideas and show you that there is a, a way that these new ideas and these painful feelings can become a new version of you which gives you more which gives you depth 
Yeah. I understand you didn't want to use the word better. I understand that. But maybe we should talk about more depth, more soulfulness, more connection, more empathy, a deeper empathy. You know, as a psychotherapist, you know, I use my own experience in my life of falling apart repeatedly. Um, no, I think I want about my seventh um, breakdown at the moment. So, and I don't say that lightly. But you know, the more you have, the, the the more familiar they become, and they just become part of. Well, this is the old transforming into a new version. Yeah, um, I'm not minimising the fear and awfulness of them, but I probably do find them easier now than I did originally in that I'm more used to making that move through that transformative process and saying, okay, my old stuff is getting ripped up. Uh, I have to trust. And there is that kind of moment of trust where the new hasn't quite emerged, but I have to trust and hold that tension that something new will emerge um, and that I'm engaged in that process. But this is back to the ego. I'm not controlling that process. <laughs> the ego has to kind of, you know, trust that it will be carried through as part of that. There's a really lovely moment in one of the Indiana Jones films um, where he's sort of having to navigate all of these obstacles to get through, to find, I think it's the, the grail in order to get back out and save his father. I think it's that. Anyway, there's this moment so I won't always give you accuracy in my stories. Sorry, <laughs> apologies. But I can see it, but I can't remember the name of the film. You know, I don't do that. Um, and he's running along and there's this chasm in front of him. And he has to get across this chasm, but it's too big to jump. And the, the, the advice he's been given is to step out and trust. Step out into the unknown and trust that the, the, the angel's breath will carry you across, something like that. But there's a crucial thing that he has to step out into the unknown and he has to step out into this nothingness without seeing what the solution is to survive. Mm. I don't know if you have seen the film. No. It's a beautiful moment in this film. Have a look at it later. Go and have a look. And he, he realises that, you know, all of his heroic kind of solutions of fixing things and fighting things is not going to help him in this moment. He has to step out into nothingness and trust. And that's what he does. He steps out. And as he steps out, this bridge emerges underneath his foot, which he couldn't have seen unless he'd taken that mm, step. Mm, mm, it's a mm. gorgeous moment in that film. Mm. And but you have to take that leap of faith first. And that's the ultimate leap of faith. Um, and it's not about being naive or ridiculous or over-optimistic or heroic. It's about trusting that there are other ways other than the heroic ego. I'm going to save everybody. We can save the world. Because that is almost another form of denial. It's another yeah. way of avoiding the painful feelings. Um, we need to heal this split between the kind of apocalyptic flight into fantasy of doom and gloom, we're all going to die, you know. It's a bit of a flight, really. We're all doomed. Well, we're probably not all doomed. A lot of us are, but not all, mm. you know. Or this heroic, we can save everybody, because it's already too late for a lot of people mm. and a lot of mm. animals and a lot of other species. So we have to find a way through the middle of those, too. Where, but I think it's a more soulful, trusting, stepping out into the unknown. And that's back to the original 
question about why is this so hard to think about? Because we're facing so many unknowns. And so we will project our fantasies of doom and gloom and apocalypse into that just to try and control that not knowing. Right, yeah. So we'll either project, uh, oh, we can put kind of screens in space that will save us. You know, we can have these ideas, you know. Oh, we can invest in nuclear power. Oh, we can do this or we can do that. You know, very rational. Back to the rational, you know. Or, or the kind of one of my particular favourites, the slightly less rational. There is a group that believes that aliens will come and save us we'll save the planet no there is and you know there are there are times i have absolute sympathy with that group of people because i just think they are just on the spectrum Mm. with other people who thinks that technology will save us it's really not it's the same belief that somebody out there will save us you know um, and then you've got the kind of sort of, you know, your other sort of fantasies that actually we're all going to die. Well, no, we're not all going to die. And we have to kind of navigate those two and find a way through the middle and hold the tension between those two. Mm. I'm rambling. I think I'm just on a roll. <laughs> I don't think you are, Caroline. I'd never be so rude as to say. No, but maybe did. we have run out of time for this episode. And that's not just because you're rambling because you weren't. Um, thank you. Thank you for all of that. Does does uh, that bring you to a place where you can answer the question you started this with? You you, know what? I was just wondering. You started started with a... I know I just went off on one. But you started with a really, really interesting question, which is why is it so hard to think about, I Mm. think? Mm. Does that bring you because I so so I guess what I'm asking is, has that helped you to find other ways to think about this? Yeah, certainly. And yeah. I know I haven't given you a practical solution. I'm aware of that. But I haven't said it's a great thing. Well, I they mean, are yeah. exactly. But and I'm also saying within that, you're not a machine t- or a robot to be fixed. Mm-hmm. You're a human being to be understood. Mm-hmm. And so we have to help you understand this. So I may talk around the subject and use metaphor and stories and art and poetry and all of those things and dreams, but does that work to help you? Does that work to help you? Has that worked to help you, do you think? I think so, but I'll let you know. Okay. Oh, yeah, that would be good. It's a journey, isn't it? That would be good, yeah. We'll be back. Okay. was Caroline Hickman, climate psychologist and teaching fellow at the University of Bath, and I'm Verity Sharp. That was the first of our Climate Crisis Conversations, Catastrophe or Transformation, a podcast series hosted by the CPA, the Climate Psychology Alliance, and produced by Parity Audio. There's more information on our show notes and do join us again for our next Climate Crisis Conversation. We're going to be having lots more of them. Until then, take care.